This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. Hi, I'm Greg Watson and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters where we'd like to talk all things property, although we usually run out of time, so let's be honest about that one. But there is a little bit today around the market nationally and what's likely to happen to house prices. As well as that, we're looking at a few national and international articles, so just mixing it up a little bit today. The first article from the spinoff.co.nz says that banks are more positive about house prices but they could still fall 10%. So you might recall that banks were being rather negative, saying that prices could drop by up to 15% post-COVID. So let's look at how how things are going here. So it says here they're being less apocalyptic on their expectations for a post-COVID housing market correction, which could be as low as 5% although they do warn of potentially significant regional variations. So the ASB bank economist Mike Jones is forecasting a modest 6% decline in national house prices on the back of higher unemployment and slowing population growth over the latter part of the year. He said that the post-lockdown market was already reflecting significant regional variation with house prices in Otago having fallen 4% since February on the back of reduced tourism in the Queenstown Lakes region and Auckland prices were down 0.5% over the same period as fewer migrants headed to the city. This article does say that Hawke's Bay, Gisborne and Wellington markets continue to fire however and you can actually add Manawatu into that one uh, just between us as we're going very well as well. So Mike Jones, the economist, says that he expects the market to stabilise and gradually recover next year in line with lower unemployment, although he said that could be even faster if loan value lending restrictions aren't reinstated. ANZ has given itself a wider window, forecasting a dip in the range of 5 to 10%. In its latest Property Focus report, it explained away the June rebound as reflecting in its words, pent-up demand for sales and a post-lockdown bounce in spending across the broader economy. They say that cash flow relief has also been a major driver, supported by lower mortgage rates, defamation, deferment sorry, schemes and wage subsidies, which have cushioned incomes and delayed job losses. Seasonally strong domestic tourism through the winter months is also providing a temporary economic boon at a time when many New Zealanders would otherwise be travelling overseas to warmer climates. I know I've been on holiday to Auckland, I'm going again shortly to Wellington and spending my money within the country uh, and it sort of feels nice, it has a certain feel-good factor when you can help our economy and this is a great way to do it through tourism. So the ANZ does go on to say that much of what has happened so far has been a temporary reprieve with the wage subsidy due to expire in September and income relief payments falling away the month after. Liz Kendall, the senior economist with ANZ, said the rates said rates have also provided those who are in a good employment position to enter the market, and it's bolstered housing activity occurring at lower price brackets, reflecting the first home buyer boost many had been expecting. And so we've noticed in Manawatu huge activity on properties that are for sale, both from investors and first home buyers, 
and uh, generally across the board. So ASB's Jones said the combination of levelling off in house prices and rock bottom mortgage rates has potentially been a boon for those first home buyers uh, who haven't had their jobs impacted by the recession. And ditching the loan to value restrictions assists borrowers with lower than average equity, in other words, uh, investors there. So Kendall goes on, or ANZ's Kendall goes on to say that although house prices have rebounded, households are conscious of their financial positions and are wary about buying big ticket items. And that's reflected in the bank's latest consumer confidence survey, which shows the number of households considering major household purchases remain at recessionary levels. So while lower ma- rates are making it cheaper to borrow, people are cautious about taking on more debt and demand for credit is down. Also, the banks are being uh, adopting a more cautious attitude on risk. Lend, lend, new lending numbers reflecting only a marginal increase in loans with 20% equity. So it's really interesting to, to see that from a national perspective, from a couple of the economists uh, from the banks. And this was mirrored in the article by on New Zealand Advisor online.co.nz, which said predictions on house prices less severe post-lockdown. And it really summarised some of the things that we were talking about there. The ASB is looking at a, considering a 6% national decline and ANZ a 5 to 10. But it just went on to say that, uh, again, there's the regional differences. And that's the important thing with regards to Manawatu. Here, the, there is a real disparity between supply and demand. There is not enough housing uh, when compared to the number of people moving into the area. So uh, I believe uh, firmly that, that we will not drop here in the Manawatu, which is something which is reassuring. Um, after the global financial crisis, you might recall in 2008, properties dropped quite massively uh, in Manawatu. Um, yet this is something which we are immune, somewhat immune to due to the busyness of the local conditions. However, the ANZ economists in this article on interest.co.nz went on to say that the downturn in the housing market is actually still to come at the end of this year and into next year. And I don't disagree with that on a national level. So the economists at ANZ have said that the fiscal support measures for the economy are doing the trick and that's why it's going to come later. So two months ago, I might remind you, that ANZ economists were predicting house price falls of 10 to 15% but with a the risk they could fall even more. So they've really pulled this back to 5 to 10%. Now the reason uh, for this is just knowing what's going to happen with the labour market. And it's a really hard one to know. As people lose jobs in certain sectors, will they be employed in other sectors? And... The reason that they're saying that things might be delayed a bit for housing are more to do with a number of these measures that are uh, finishing up. So the government's done some that will stay. Um, The Reserve Bank uh, keeping OCR rates where they are or reducing them. Banks having interest rates at record lows. Those will continue for a while, but the sort of ones that are going to wear off are wage subsidies and other subsidy measures that that are... uh, that have been artificially propping up the economy at this point. They also say that although housing is a a good measure of what might come in, housing is normally the sector that changes first before others. It says other industries will not be immune uh, should uh, 
Yeah, the other industries should not be immune should the housing market take a significant hit. And they continue to expect that GDP will contract 7 to 9% this year. But, uh, you know, it can be pretty hard to know um, exactly where things are at, um, depending on your view on economists, of course, and how accurate they are. Now, this article from scoop.co.nz underpins um, – or talks about the underpinning of the housing market by four catalysts. So this is why things may may not drop as much as predicted. So the housing bubble, many people will predict will burst um, unless there's mass unemployment. But uh, again, we're not seeing that because the intervention with the COVID-19 response, mortgage and wage subsidies um, really are Helping. So let's look at the four things that are underpinning the market at the moment. There's the low interest rates that remain as, as one of the most potent housing catalysts. So they say that as long as interest rates remain at ultra-low levels and the Reserve Bank continues to indicate stability or potential further declines, the housing market will continue to see very strong momentum. Recent subtle conversations related to Australian banks' preparations for potential negative interest rates, which also influence the market perception that rates will drop further rather than trend upward over the next 12 to 18 months. So historically, interest rates were a leading indicator for the residential housing market, and so keeping them low is a really potent tool for retaining housing demand, especially amongst investors and first-home buyers. So apart from low interest rates, the second one is extremely limited housing stock, which upholds price stability. And I would say in this region, not only stability, but it just keeps pushing the market up. So the lockdown actually had an effect on new housing builds, where a lot of housing projects were dramatically slowed, and now most are well behind schedule. The decline of new housing starts combined with the unusual boost of short-term immigration by many Kiwis returning over the past few months has intensified the competition amongst investors. And similarly, existing homeowners and investors also remain undeterred, tightly holding their current properties since few better alternatives exist. So unless there is a dramatic near-term expansion of new housing or new incentives arise for existing owners to sell, the housing inventories will remain low for the foreseeable future. It just seems that there's very few alternatives when it comes to uh, good, great returns than property. It's performing very well. And that's the next point. Investors have limited alternative yield options. So for many years, economists in New Zealand have urged people away, away from housing investments to other vehicles, including the share market. The 23rd of March drop for nearly every NZX offering discouraged long-term investing in the share market and forced more Kiwis to seek the perceived safety in housing. And besides the early flight of capital out of the share markets, there is also a growing trend for departure out of bank term investments. As many Kiwi term deposits now arrive at their maturity dates, the new interest rates yields fail to encourage long-term reinvestment. And there's a number of... Kiwi investors playing wait and see uh, with the volatile markets, sort of utilising short-term bank deposits or sitting on cash that they withdrew in March and April. As well as that, a significant number of first home buyers are also sitting in a wait and see, optimistically hoping for a market correction before investing. Again, Manawatu is Wanganui immune to that, largely, as uh, it's unlikely that you will be rewarded for waiting to see if the market drops in this region. 
It's valuable to understand that these numerous capital flights are the result of incredibly poor yields and significant market instability, and now combined with high house prices and low inventory. And then the fourth point that's keeping the market up is that Kiwis have learned from history that housing is a safer investment. So the fourth catalyst driving housing demand, and very likely to drive this demand for at least another generation, is the encultured ideology that housing is a safe haven in stormy market conditions. Investors traditionally have solid memories of economic upheavals. Many Kiwi investors still recall the stark economic upheavals of the 1980s, and I know my um, father had shares at that time which crashed, and the end of credit rationing and labour market reforms of the 1990s, and fears of bank failures stemming from the 2008 global financial crisis. So we have this deeply encultured ideal regarding the safety of housing investment. This does, not, this does go against the recommended value found in diversified portfolios, which is always a good idea. So according to this article by Scoop, as long as three of these four catalysts remain steady, so will the housing market. And that looks like where we're going to be for quite some time to come. So we're just going to have a break now. I've got a little bit of music here, something just to brighten up your day. This is Madness with Our House. Father wears his Sunday best Mother's time 
that she needs a rest The kids are playing up downstairs Sister's sighing in her sleep Brother's got a date to keep He can't hang around And that was Madness here on Property Matters with Our House. Just a bit of a housing theme there, of course, a classic song. It's been used in advertising as well as just a popular tune indeed. But maybe one of Madness's uh, more popular songs. We're now going to go to a bit of international news just for a bit of variation. We haven't covered too much in recent weeks. So let's have a look at this first article from stuff.co.nz. Jeffrey Epstein's New York and Florida mansions listed for a combined $165 million. So the Wall Street Journal reports that the notorious financier and accused sex traffickers' palatial mansions are being marketed and include a seven-storey, 2,600-square-metre townhouse. Hard to actually imagine that size (laughs) unless you probably went for a visit. On the Upper East Side of Manhattan near Central Park, if it reached its New Zealand $133 million asking price, it would be the highest for such a property in the history of the city. No mention is made of Epstein in the listing uh, of the one-time private school property that was previously owned by his mentor, Leslie H. Wexner, the founder and chairman of Victoria's Secret parent company, L Brand. And that, along with a $33 million valued nine-bedroom property on Palm Beach, Florida's intracoastal waterway, is the first of Epstein's expensive real estate portfolio to be listed since he died in a jail cell while awaiting trial for running an elaborate sex trafficking scheme involving underage girls almost a year ago. Now, Jeffrey Epstein and uh, Ghislaine Maxwell have been accused of uh, sex trafficking and it's really quite a story if if you do have access to Netflix there is a documentary on there which is very interesting but harrowing indeed uh, with regards some of the things that they are alleged to have gotten up to however here's a little bit of a silver lining funds from the sales will go into Epstein's estate currently valued at more than 900 million New Zealand dollars which recently announced a compensation scheme for his alleged victims. So I do hope that the money from the sale of those properties does go to help those people, um, the alleged victims. So here's another one for those of you who are living in the UK or have lived in the UK or might be able to relate. And this is a London micro flat with shower, sink and cooking next to the bed on sale for $385,000. Now, this is a great article. It's worth having a look on on stuff at the picture of what you get because the shower, the kitchen, and the bed are actually all touching each other. It's a micro-studio flat in Notting Hill, London, and... It's locate, which is located in the borough of Kensington and Chelsea, one of the most sought-after locations in the UK, and it's a very squishy 7.3 square metres. It's fitted with a single bed, a hob and a shower, as well as a toilet cubicle, all lined up next to each other, with so little space that you couldn't set a single foot between them. So the hop could serve double duty as a bedside table if you have no intentions of cooking. Well, it's not clear how you might plan to cook on a single hob with no bench space. I'm just laughing because 
you'd have to see the photo. So this article, if you look up London Microflat on stuff, lifestyle, you should find it. The agents say it requires modernisation throughout and could become a wonderful base for someone. <laughs> uh, wow, I keep looking at the photo. That's really, really quite something. I mean, imagine a single bed next to a vanity thing, which also has a couple of hops on it, and that's right up against a shower box. So there we go. Uh, it says the nearby train stations would provide a prospective by easy access into the heart of the city and West End. <laughs> the article says the listing screams dirty hostel room more than it does escape. But hey, it does make renting in Wellington look a little better by comparison. So it's quite amazing. They also say that maybe this is uh, the idea of this is for someone like Harry Potter uh, if he continued to live under the cupboards during his childhood might uh, might like this place. So there we go. Always, always something interesting here on Property Matters. I'd strongly suggest having a look at that photograph. Coming back now to a bit of local news, uh, or local, I should say, regional, Christchurch. Christchurch skyline could be transformed as building rules are relaxed. This from stuff.co.nz. Christchurch skyline could be transformed over the next decades as the building height limits have been relaxed across the country. So Urban Development Minister Phil Twyford released the new national policy that will stop councils in New Zealand's five larger cities from imposing building height limits of less than six storeys in central areas and along transport corridors. The new ruling will also force local authorities to accept developments without car parks apart from mobility parks. And the City Council, uh, Christchurch City Council, is currently reviewing how this policy would change planning laws, but Acting Mayor Andrew Turner has expressed disappointment that the council feedback on the policy was not heeded. The national policy statement aims to increase housing density in urban areas and encourage development in places close to public transport. Under the rules, councils in what they call Tier 1 cities, Auckland, Wellington, Tauranga, Christchurch and Hamilton, will not be able to set building height limits of less than six storeys in the city centres. The Christchurch City Council staff believe post-quake building height restrictions could be gone under that new policy. So their feedback sent into the government last September said the changes would require greater intensification than what was allowed in the city's current district plan, despite a lack of demonstrable need for that much more housing and the potential impacts it would have on neighbourhood amenity. So we'll just watch that, watch that space on that one. But affordable housing is one of the country's top problems to solve and um, this policy could help with that. So that's interesting because this affects uh, all urban areas with more than 10,000 people, which is quite a low bar there, really, with regards to planning and what might be done. Here's a little bit of uh, news here from the New Zealand Herald. And this one is, Woman made complaints to landlord about neighbours, including an attempted murder. This is pretty incredible reading. This is a... Tenant who really feared for her safety in a state housing complex and made numerous complaints to the landlord. So the article says that since living in the Kainga Ora property in 2017, a lady who the Herald has agreed to call Anne claims she suffered constant violent behaviour, police involvement and criminal behaviour from her neighbours and she lodged numerous complaints including continuous loud music, constant partying, fighting on the street and at neighbouring parties, 
gang presence in the neighbourhood, verbal abuse from neighbours, neighbours constantly parking in or blocking her driveway and police attending those properties. And she'd laid a complaint with the landlord. On, on one separate occasion, she was woken up in the middle of the night by a gang member looking for her neighbours. And she certainly said that this behaviour interfered with her comfort and privacy in use of the property. The woman, who's only 50 and lives in the property alone, has a chronic medical condition where she suffers from extensive and different migraines. And her condition can be brought on by stress, temperature and light. So she says, as she's always in a constant state of worry and stress, uh, this is really having an effect on her. So we'll have to see where that one goes, as she is in public housing, not in the private sector. Uh, The difficulty there, meaning she may not be able to find easily another place to live. And it begs the question in the public housing side of things, how do you deal with these matters? They have a mandate, of course, to help people and to help their living conditions. It's another article based in Wellington, this one, Tears and Frustration as the Wellington Housing Market Heats Up During Coronavirus Pandemic. This one from Stuff says that COVID-19 has barely dented house prices in the major cities and local um, the Wellington property market is the hottest ticket in town. It's amazing that uh, demand is so fierce that a block of flats valued at 42000 40 years ago and bought for $700,000 a decade ago last week sold for a whopping $2.1 million, so that's tripled in 10 years. It says the Greater Wellington region has seen a massive rise in growth in one year. Masterton and Carterton prices increased by 19.7% and 17.9% respectively. Rumataka Hill and Lower Hutters recorded double-digit growth up to 664,500. So this growth seems to be shutting young buyers out of the market and some people have even been crying at auctions because they've missed out on properties. So professionals, Redcoats, Hutt City Managing Director John Ross says he's never seen a market with so much pressure on it. And that's saying something because he's been in the industry for some time. He says he's seen grown men crying at auctions because they missed out on property. The last one like that said it was the fourth property in a row that they'd missed out on. Trades me, Trade Me spokesman Aaron Clancy said the Wellington market's in a unique position at the moment. The coronavirus pandemic helped create a perfect storm of high housing demand and perilously low supply. So really hard there. I'll probably just uh, summarise that article there, but it's certainly a a tough, tough situation for folks that are in Wellington and um, certainly in a number of the regions these things are largely being mirrored. I'm not sure about the crying, but certainly about the missing out on multiple houses. It's become very, very difficult indeed. So that's where we'll leave it today with regards property matters. I hope that this has been of uh, some interest to you. We love having you tune in here. Uh, first recorded on Manawatu People's Radio, Te Reo Irirangi o Nga Tangata o Manawatu. And you can also find this where all good podcasts are found. I'm Greg Watson and this is Property Matters. We'll see you again next week. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show.